Hi, I'm Malcolm Hawker, and this is the CDO Matters Podcast, the show where I dig deep into the strategic insights, best practices, and practical recommendations that modern data leaders need to help their organizations become truly data-driven. Tune in for thought-provoking discussions with data, IT, and business leaders to learn about the CDO matters that are top of mind for today's chief data officers. All right, we're here. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time it is, wherever you are, wherever you are in the world. I'm Malcolm Hawker, the host of the CDO Matters podcast. I'm thrilled that you've decided to spend some time with us today. I'm also thrilled to be joined by Shantan Atuli, who is uh, with Upsol, but we're going to hear a little bit more about her current role. Uh, Shantana, you are a data scientist by trade, yes? Yes. Wonderful. <clears throat> well, we had a we had a prep call, uh, I don't know, about a week ago, uh, before we actually had a chance to meet each other this past weekend at Data Day Texas, which was an awesome day. I think everybody pretty much enjoyed it. I certainly did. But but one of the coolest things about about Shantana's history is that you're a nuclear physicist. You've actually worked at CERN, like the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. How how in the world does a data person end up smashing photons in in Switzerland? I think it's the other way around. Um, a physicist. Uh, there was first a physicist who was smashing uh, protons and uh, ions together, and then went into industry for doing data, but it was really, um, that, that physics was my introduction to working with data. So I don't really think of the two as being separate. Um, I mean, so as a physicist, uh, as you're getting trained as a physicist, so it's, you know, through high school and undergrad and all of that, you learn a lot of data skills. So you learn skills around how to make statistically significant statements um, and, you know, how to, how to make plots and, and analyze data. Um, so I had that, but then it was really during the time that I worked with these massive particle collision data that I got a true, true appreciation for um, how sometimes how hard the data work can be, how many different aspects there, there are. So part of the work was just figuring out at the hardware software level how to collect data the, the interesting data from these massive particle collisions where data is being created at petabytes per second. Um, and obviously we can neither <laughs> process nor store data um, at that rate. So it was, uh, it's, you know, that's, that's one of the bigger, bigger challenges is how do I even trigger on the interesting events? And then from there all the way through to, you know, how do I maximize the signal to noise ratio? How do I come up with the correct models that describe the signal and the background noises? and then eventually to extracting those signals through um, generalized linear models. So all of that, um, and of course, you know, you're writing these uh, programs and, I mean, we, we use C++ um, in the particle physics community um, and it's, it's a lot. <laughs> like the collaboration, it's, it's a, you know, global um, collaboration. All of these experiments are so your coworkers are in, you know, literally in every part of the world. Um, so managing that, uh, all the collaboration software, uh, like there's so much um, that's similar to data work in industry, especially at you know the bigger companies with the massive data. That I really don't think of 
that experience is being, you know, like separated from mm. um, what I did after that when I uh, switched over to industry. Well, but so you're measuring things that are not visible with the human eye, correct? Correct. I mean, you're talking at a subatomic level here. I mean, we're not we're not seeing these these things. Mm-hmm. So you're building. Mo- I would have to assume that a part of this is you're building models to measure things that cannot be seen, but the models are. It's based on expected behavior of how these things are actually acting. Yes. I mean, that's yes. A, that's so part of it. Yeah. Part of it is building models based on expected behavior. Part of it is building models based on observed data. So there's both those angles come into play. Um, And um, we are measuring the aftermath of the collision, uh, which still is, you know, the particles that are being created, we can't see that's, you know, very small. But um, the effect that the particles leave behind in these detectors that we design is really the data that we're analyzing. So we're using that that like aftermath data to reconstruct what might have happened in the actual collision. Okay, so for you data professionals out there who 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 um, are challenged with data observability, I, I would try this on for size. This this is observability kind of next level stuff when we're talking about observability. But also, what I'm hearing you say is, I, I don't know, I'm I, I, in my mind. You know, one of the big challenges for 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 data leaders, data practitioners, and this was one of the co- the the big themes that we discussed in in Austin, was this whole idea of measuring value, right? And it, and it's a conversation you and I were both involved in and during our town hall. It, it 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 got a little lively there for for a while. I went on a little bit of a rant because um, that's kind of what I do. Um, but what you just described is like things that cannot even be seen, subatomic level, petabytes per second, like holy cow, right? <laughs> we're measuring that. We, and and, and we're, we're measuring what you said, you know, we're, we're reducing signal to noise ratio. We're coming up with reasonable probabilities of things. Not to say that measuring value is nuclear physics. <laughs> it sounds an awful lot simpler than nuclear physics, though, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I may, maybe I went on another rant here, but if we could do one, I, I have to think that we could do a before and after on the value of data, or am I just simplifying things? Like before, before, before and- here's here's where we are today. Here's our business KPIs. Here's where we are today. Here's how efficient our organization runs. Here's how quickly we send invoices, or how fast we recognize revenue, or the length of time it takes us to make something before. Then we do something to the data. We improve our quality. We build an integration. Maybe we deploy a mesh. Who, who knows? Doesn't matter. But that's the after. Got to think that we could do a before and after. Yes. Well, the, the tricky thing about measuring the impact of anything is that how do you isolate that impact? So you're talking about a whole entire business, right? There are so many different factors mm. that goes into um, each of all of those KPIs. I I would be very skeptical of saying over this, you know, two month period or even two week period, um, this these changes that we're seeing in our business KPIs are solely due to the changes that we made in in our data quality enforcement or data observability. So it's just I think it's too there's just too many factors that go into it. 
Okay, so you're you're saying a direct one-to-one causal relationship would be impossible. Okay, I get that, and I agree. But we do live in a world of probabilities, um, where where maybe it's not a one-to-one. Maybe you're just one of many things that could be potentially influencing. But that could still yeah. be meaningful, could it not? If you if you yeah, determine yeah, okay, there's these eight variables that we have through our model, these are the eight things that actually we think could be in, in, impacting business performance. Maybe it's day of the week, maybe it's whether it's sunny outside, I, I, I don't know. But data could be one of those. Can we get to that? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, the, uh, the other issue that I, that I see though is, um, you're, we're always trying to improve the business. So in, in, mm. to this, do this experiment, right, this theoretical, experiment that we're talking about um would i would i hold off on running new marketing initiatives because i just want to measure the impact of you know something in my data pipeline i think i mean we definitely don't have that level of trust or collaboration across organizations uh, i feel to to actually you know carve out that time to make that especially at startups you know you uh, i work at a startup yeah it's i think it we could say, I, I, I mean, I agree with you that in, in principle, you could do it before and after um, some changes that you've made. And that would at least provide a, um, a un, uncertainty band. It's how I would call it. Although in this case, like that's the result we're going for, for the possible effect uh, that this one variable could have had. All right. Well, I'm not, I'm not arguing trying to be right. I'm just, I'm. Well, maybe I am, but I, I, do, <laughs> I, I, do, I do believe that, I mean, either data plays a role or it doesn't, right? And, and if it doesn't, I don't have a job. So <laughs> all us being equal, I, I, I want to find, even if it's just 5%, right? Like we're, we're, even if we said something like, well, we're 80% certain that there, there's a 5% influence in better data, heck, I'll, 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 I'll take it, right? But I'm not going to be the guy to tell a nuclear physicist that she's wrong. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think we can iterate on this um, after, yeah. after this I think we should really sit down and try to hash out how to, how right. to better measure the impact of a data initiative on the business I, I think we are agreed that there's no GUT in, in measuring data value the grand unified theory of, of, of all things right we're not going to figure out how to, how to circle the square but at least come up with some reasonable estimations I would, I would hope all right, yeah, let's, it's funny that you GUT is because uh, I think a lot of the times it is our gut feelings that sort of uh, hey, let awesome. us pick. <laughs> well, so but, but let's pick on that a little bit, right? Like people in the data world like like to say, "Oh, well, you're using your gut and you're not using data." But where does the where does the gut come from? Yeah, the the, the gut comes from experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think no, I'm, I'm a pretty, yeah yeah. Go ahead. I'm a big proponent of heuristics. Um, I, I don't think, like, even from a science perspective, I don't think we would be where we are today if we didn't have heuristics and we didn't go out and, you know, test those theories out and stuff. So, no, I've, I've always said um, numbers are great, uh, collecting the data when possible. I mean, one thing is that it's it's hard to collect the relevant data to do whatever measurement you're trying to do. It's not It's not always trivial. Sometimes it can be quite impossible. So you have to rely on heuristics at some level. And um, I think the more you sort of embrace that and uh, you know, work 
work with the data and heuristics together, the gut feelings um, or, or instincts and lived experiences together, the better your you know, holistic understanding is going to be. Um, and the, uh, I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Well, another, another, so, so, I mean, yes, all else being equal, we should be using data to make decisions and not just gut. But I, you know, I wonder, and I'm, I'm not trying to be contrarian here. I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of an average leader who has to make a decision like pretty quick. Right. And, and, and she, or he would be given some data. Maybe maybe there's a dashboard. Maybe there isn't a dashboard. Maybe there's nothing. But you've got to make some. You got to make a decision now. Maybe you go talk to two or three people, um, and maybe you didn't actually defer to some known published dashboard, but you did your best in the amount of time that you had to do it. I, I, I think you could argue that that's a data driven decision, but I think the real problem. And this is this is an interesting academic exercise. I think the real problem is is that we're not at, we're neither tracking the out we're not tracking the decision, and we're certainly not tracking the outcome of the, of the decision, right? Like in your in in when when you were smashing, I said photons, but but you said it's not photons. Those are that's light, right? No, we smashing uh, uh, protons, uh, and yeah. then also just ions. Yeah. Okay. When when you're smashing them, you know the before state and you know the after state. Right. And and the decision in that case is is the smash. Right. And and you're able to measure all of these states, which gives you confidence of, of, of your data. But in our case, we're not measuring the impacts of the of we're, we're often completely and totally unaware of the decision itself, like a decision has been made. And then we will see the net impacts of some sort of outcome, but we're not really kind of modeling that we're not following the life of the decision. So there's this kind of growing field of decision science that says that you can do all these things. What do you what do you think about that? Is there is there is there some validity to? Are you familiar with the decision science, and do you think there's validity there? Yeah, yeah, I am familiar. So okay, first thing as a physicist, I have to say we're not we don't know the after state of the collision. We are trying to probe the after state of the oh, collision. Okay, okay, okay. okay. There's signals though. You, you mentioned there's like signals. There's footprints or something that where you can okay. Yeah, the, yeah, we take the footprints in order to analyze, but that's where the interesting uh, unknowns are. That's what we're probing is what yeah. happens when you collide these two particles at this, this energy. Um, so decisions, so I, I think that there is a gap between, and I think you'll agree with this, uh, between data science and deci decision science today. Yes. And I think it's going to take some time to close that gap. But even when you said like a leader is give you know receives data to make decision, right? I mean, I know that's the reality that you know you can't as a leader you probably don't have the time to go work with the data. But it's not enough to be given data because what does mm. that mean, right? You're, if you're given a dashboard or like a report, which is all you probably have time for, you probably don't need, get to spend more than five minutes, you know, reading up on this before you have to make this call. Um, it's, is it, is it really enough? Like, cause there's so much bias that is introduced by the person that's actually doing the analysis, that's gathering the data, that's, you know, giving you the insights and you don't, you're not privy to any of that. And I mean, bias, I don't mean like they're ruining the data or ruining no, 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 the results. Exactly. Just working with the data, you introduce your, you know, your own biases in there. And, um, have you documented your assumptions? Have you documented the you know, limitations of whatever analysis you ran, uh, you ran, what's out of scope, what's, so all of that, you're not going to be able to communicate 
at least, you know, <laughs> we humans generally are not able to communicate these when we just provide um, a stakeholder or an executive with a, a number or a set of numbers and they have to make go make this decision. So um, it's, I mean, it's flawed at the core. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard at the core, um, this idea of being able to make good decisions um, using data in a, in a data-driven fashion. Um, and which is why I think, yes, partly the heuristics really have to come in. You have to go with what you've seen and what mistakes you've made in the past. Um, and then the other part is, you know, I, th I think a good leader will have the curiosity to sort of, you know, not just look at a board that someone's produced, but, you know, to, if enough information is in there to probe and understand and maybe sit with this person and say, okay, you say you did this analysis and this is the results, but can you tell me more? Where, you know, what, what are the parameters? What did you have control over and what you didn't you? And really try to get the whole picture before actually relying on that data to make decisions. And um, one last thing is, uh, this is something I was lamenting, I think, uh, when our, when, on our previous call. We don't do error bars in, in our line of work in industry, right? That's, that's a big miss. It would be so... Uh, like we would make much better decisions if we did error bars, uncertainty ranges on the results that we were um, determining and sharing, because you know cutoffs are cutoffs, cut off numbers, thresholds. It's just you know your point five, you know point one under or point one over makes all the difference. So what is actually my confidence level on this number that I'm quoting? That's what you mean by an error bar. Me meaning, meaning, I'm seventy percent confident that that this will drive twenty percent returns, like plus yeah. plus mm -hmm. minus some some sort of some sort of sort exactly. of you know error rate. Well, that's. Do you, I wonder how people would react to that because that seems logical to me, right? But maybe maybe I'm just a little bit too scientific. Maybe I'm just too a little bit too analytical. But but that seems logical to me because we live in a world of probabilities. Nothing is nothing is one hundred. Nothing is one hundred percent, right? Every, every we live in a world of probability. So, this is one area where I think that a lot of data leaders kind of maybe struggle a little bit, and that I think historically we've been really deterministic about everything, right? Like we've been really binary about everything. Either it's good data quality or it's bad data quality. Either we're data driven or we're not great data driven. I don't know if that's an indictment of just society as a whole, or if it's the way a lot of us think. I don't. I don't know, but that's not really how reality works. Reality is is all probabilities, and 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 that's kind of how AI works as well. Um, I, I yeah. so I don't know. I'm 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 thinking and talking at the same time, but I think there's an opportunity for a lot of data leaders to start thinking differently about their business, and one of them would be okay. Perfect doesn't exist. And maybe we should just maybe sixty percent is good enough. What do you think? Yeah, but I need to know. But I need to know whether it's what what my is is it sixty percent? Is it twenty percent? Like what's good enough? And what sort of uncertainty is does a number that you're providing me has? But yeah, I mean it is definitely very challenging. And like one thing that doesn't help is the idea of move fast and break things, which is so much the ethos, um, especially at startups. And I mean. It's it's always going to be a trade off. So I mean, I certainly get it. I'm not saying throw away that mindset and you know so slow down all of your uh, work, but uh, there has to be a voice of reason too. I think so. This is why I think uh, as a startup grows in the like thirty to fifty percent uh, person range, and I mean, of course, that's just a you know it's a generalization. The growth can have different metrics. Yeah. Um, at some point, you need to have 
okay, the R&D team or the engineering team that's sort of sprinting and, and you know, churning out and putting out these features, you sort of need to have uh, on that pro in that product org, you need another, you know, <laughs> you know, the other other side of it, the other angel that sits on the other shoulder, right? right. Uh, to say, you know, are we, let's measure, let's measure if we're doing the right thing. Let's measure if we're moving too fast. Let's um, stop and think about whether that feature that we're so excited about, and we're definitely getting even necessary. Let's do the um, market research to figure it out. And I mean, I, I think that's, uh, so good product orgs do have that. Um, and I think data folks, data teams are in a position to be that voice of reason on the um, other side of let's just run and produce, produce, produce. Well, it's all about balance, right? Like it's, it's, it's not just, you know, um, break things, but it's not just analyze forever. It's, 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 it's some happy medium. And that's going to vary, that's going to vary based on your mile under. It's going to vary based on your company. To your point, startups, yeah, let's go break some stuff. Um, big giant companies, Fortune 100 companies, maybe it's a little bit too much of the analysis, right? And not enough of the action and try to find some sort of balance there. That's, that's what I've been urging data leaders to do when it comes to AI, because I've seen, what I've seen is for a lot of them, not all of them, but, but for a lot of them, the AI is just kind of unknown, right? It's kind of scary. It's unknown. I'm not even really sure how it works. Seems like a little bit of, of, of sorcery to me and I need to slow down. Right, like that—that that seems to be the reaction of, of of a lot of folks, and it's a natural reaction. I, I get it. Right. What would you What would you say to that to that data leader that is like, okay, maybe, maybe I need to slow down, and and maybe they're not reacting fast enough, or maybe they're not reacting as fast as their board would want them to react. What would you say to that data leader? Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. So, it's it's really hard to separate the hype from the reality or or the hype from the actual advancements that that we've uh seen in the last year ish um llms are fantastic and i mean to, today we're having we have multimodal models too um that are you know generative and the promise and the potential is huge and i think that's what brings on the hype right there's promise so we must all you know, jump on this ship, but um, so I mean, you know, I don't, I don't. Um, it's 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 a hard decision, I think, for every data leader that's receiving pressure from their superiors, from the C-suite, or from the the chief executive officer, um, to incorporate AI somehow into their mandate. Um, I definitely resonate with that. Like it, the the pressure is real, and it's it's mm -hmm. a difficult difficult position to be. However. It's also a time to really be, uh, you know, be contemplative about this, because I think at the end of the day, the question that we really need to be asking um, as like data leaders of data teams um, is what is the natural fit um, between my product and an AI augmentation or an AI um, version of this? Like, I can't really force AI into the product if there isn't a natural way to weave that story in. Now, one common, so I, I work in tooling, data science tooling, and uh, one common way to augment the product with AI is auto, um, auto uh, copilot, right? Code, code generation or code complete um, in some sense, or having a little assistance that sort of helps you with your workflow. And that's potentially useful. 
right? With certain tools um, at certain scales is certainly useful. But if you, for example, if you have a low code interface already, and you know the AI can at best do like ten different suggestions because that's like literally the number of uh, you know ways you can um, configure the the task that you're trying to do. It's not so useful, right? So it's like, what is because even before you get to the lift, what is the lift of trying to incorporate AI into my product? Is what is it really going to add? And is there a natural story? And if there isn't, then you know we have to push back. We have to push back on on the data leaders and say, hey, this is hype, and I understand you wanted to do it, and the pressure's probably coming from even you know <laughs> higher up. You know, it's probably the VCs and whatnot. But um, there there isn't really a natural story to tell here. No, we could we could add something that's completely, you know, it's absent in the product today, but would fit more into an AI story. But let's recognize that that's like a pivot or at least a bifurcation of the, of the product. So yeah, I, I think for me, the biggest thing is asking uh, what the fit is and whether that fit is, adds enough value. Um, beyond, once you get beyond that and you say, okay, there, there is uh, some benefit to be unlocked here for my specific product, the next challenge, of course, is hiring the right folks to um, actually incorporate. And that's also hard. Um, and, and this is where I say, uh, like one of the things that I've, I've uh, spoken about uh, previously is like the role definition, uh, defining different data roles. Um, there are lots of ML and AI um, professionals and folks that really know this space and have the experience. Um, but Roles like data scientists, for example, they're neither here nor not there, right? They're not explaining. Um, so you really have to look at someone's resume and someone's experience and, and what they're um, interested in in order to figure out if they will be able to incorporate an AI-based uh, practice or AI project or whatever it may be into the product. Um, but, I mean, those professionals are certainly out there. And um, if you... I mean, the other aspect of today, where we are today um, with AI is a lot of it is becoming turnkey, right? Mm-hmm. You, I mean, for example, these large models, you're not going to train and host them. You're going to probably ping their predict API to get an answer. And that's an easy integration. Like, it, you know, it's still new and you won't find a lot of people who have done exactly that, but it's a, it's a relatively easy integration. Um, so yeah, figure out the scope, um, figure out what value it, it adds. And once you have that, um, you just make sure to try to hire the, that's a challenge too, but try to hire the right people um, in order to do that integration. Well, I would argue, you know, does everybody need to run and hire a, you know, a three, $400,000 a year data scientist? Maybe not. But what you just described um, is like, use a turnkey solution, solution, right? Use something out of the box, like, like an LLM, um, whether that's open source uh, like a Bard, or whether that is an open AI, find ways to do that. But what you described, um, I, I think that there's still some unique work there. When all this started, you know, the craze was prompt engineering, and nobody really kind of knew what that meant. And people were like, well, wait a minute, hold on a second. Is this like a really unique standalone expertise? But where we are, where we find ourselves now, I think a year later, is, is that what, what I think we're seeing is it's not just prompt, in, well, it may be prompt engineering, but it's really complex prompt engineering where we are doing something to data in order to pass it over to an LLM so that the LLM, so we're no, passing maybe a known fact set 
And maybe that is in a graph or in a vector or in something else. But, you know, OpenAI, the latest version is like 300 pages it'll take in, in a prompt. So you can pass an awful lot of information in as a known fact set. I, I think that that task in and of itself and doing that, um, what is known as a rag pattern, right? Retrieval of augmented generation, like doing that work, that sounds like a like a like more of a data engineering skill. What what do you think? That's that's interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. Um I mean I how have you thought about it? I just like I've never thought about whether or not it's a data engineering oh, okay, skill. Okay. I'm not even a big fan of, I think, uh necessarily differentiating between data engineering and data science skills. I oh. find more value in differentiating like analytic skills and ML skills. Um whatever your your role is, either of those um fields. But to come back to um the question of like prompt engineering versus data engineering versus um all of this so i mean we, we might not agree on definitions here but uh so i do i think of data engineering as um sort of integrating data uh bringing in data from different sources um mm -hmm. so but what with prompt engineering or knowing how to or let's like just in simpler words knowing how to ask the right question with the right. relevant context to an a generative model to get the right answer. Um, there might be some more engineering heavy aspects of that, like how do you build out the uh, retrieval infrastructure for your uh, relevant data, in which case it's you know closer to engineering. Um, but uh, you know from the design aspect, like how do you like how do you architect the um, pattern of providing data and, and retrieving uh, and like uh, retrieving information? I feel that's that's probably closer to a data scientist's um, job, Rick. So, I mean, I think as with any any sort of uh, technology, it's it's going to be a mix, right? It's going going you're going to need different skills that um, come into play here. So, um, I will I will uh, just briefly add that I was very skeptical of prompt engineering be, becoming a thing. So I was like, well, you know. Um, now that we've sort of iterated on that a little bit and um, sort of, you know, like, as you say, uh, rags, retrieval, augmented uh, generation, like now that we've put more thought into what that really means and what that looks like, um, I think it makes a lot, lot more sense. Um, the, so I've, I'm, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working in NLP a little bit and this is not exactly new, right? Right. Like this, um, uh, the the part that's new is these models are massive, and like the scope is 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 massive. But even even the generative aspect isn't new. The way that we um, train models and uh, you know sort of you know one thing that we used to, that I've done is like a recency bias, right? So you're you're going to, you're going to train your model on you know historical data over three, four, five years, however you you have. But obviously, the context that's going to be most relevant to your model tomorrow is the stuff that is the data that's come in today. So, um, so you want to weight that weight that data more. So, like putting in that recency bias, things like this, like the architectural patterns that go into how to use NLP to best serve the use case, that's been there, um, and there is 
a lot of folks that have been doing this and know how to do it really well. And not all of them are going to call themselves an AI engineer or, you know, so it's, uh, I guess I'm trying to say that the, uh, the actual space or the amount of skilled professionals in the space and pr- professionals that can quickly pick up either, you know, one set of skills, like kind of integrating with the APIs or the other side of it, like um, architecting the, you know, h- how to do the retrieval is, is going to be like, we're, we're going to have plenty of people that are going to be able to pick up all of those things. So that kind of like, <laughs> honestly, in some ways, we're going back to this idea of, of prompt engineering being like how to, um, like, I think of it as like knowing how to Google well, too, right. like in, in some ways, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But also, it, I mean, I think it may go a little bit beyond that, um, at least for now. I think in the future, um, a, lo- a lot of this will be figured out. But, you know, our, our, our common friend, Juan Cicada at Data.World uh, gave a presentation at Data Day Austin where he was talking about using knowledge graphs to drive 30% improvement in the accuracy of, of LLMs. So I think, I think that's material, right, where you can pass inform, information, a known fact set in and, and pass context, right, in, into an LLM and improve the quality of the responses. So I think for data leaders, that's attractive because so many are really freaked out by hallucinations. Right or or or, mm. or the creativity or or just blatant inaccuracies, and given we do live in this deterministic world, I mean, I I do worry that a lot of people are just seeing a, a one or two bad apples spoiling the entire bunch, right? Where where they've got maybe a negative experience or or, or they've seen you know an LLM you know, hallucinator, maybe they've they've put their own name in and asked about themselves, and what they see back isn't isn't quite factual, <laughs> right? Um, so I think there's there's promise on the horizon to to mitigate that, but let's just kind of shift into a little bit more of a of a thought exercise. Um, a lot of comp- a lot of particularly bigger companies are sitting on a lot of data that is just sitting there fallow, not driving value at all. And I think I think kind of buried in a lot of the transactional data and a lot of the metadata is a lot of really valuable stuff about comp- how companies perform, what works, what doesn't work. And, and maybe this is really too high level um, and too academic a, a question, but h- how would a data leader go about utilizing AI to start understand, or utilizing anything? Maybe it doesn't have to be AI. I'd just love your opinion on, I do dashboards today, right? I, 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 I do some reporting today. I give the business what it wants. I make sure that the dashboards reflect the KPIs that the business is running on, but I'm, you know, and I tinkered in the past with with Hadoop and big data, and it was a little bit of a train wreck because you know we, we couldn't find a use case. But I know in my heart, I know there's unknowns out there. There's a whole bunch of unknowns out there that could transform my business. And how do how do I go about finding them in a way that doesn't end up with me getting fired because I spent two million dollars on a boondoggle? Oh, that's that's a really deep question and an excellent question. And I mean, I will start by saying I don't have the answers. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> I don't mean it, by the way. But I fully agree with you that there is, like, okay, so just breaking things down, right? We collect data about our business to understand how the business is doing. Like the interesting part, the data is just the means; it's not the it's not the goal. Um, and 
we have always like we always have to make choices around what data we collect because the business doesn't leave a perfect footprint and even if it did or even the the best version of the footprint is often inaccessible so it's proxies upon proxies upon proxies which is fine models and representations um so th that's that's it's the best we can do and that's something we have to accept however this uh you know i really like something you said like there's so much when you're sitting on so much data and you've done the exercises of trying to figure out which data sources are most important which ones you combine to get what answers you're inevitably leaving out some important information it's just how it is no matter how well you think you've seen through the data um especially like metadata i think folks are talking more and more about metadata yep. these days but i think for the longest times time we haven't pay, been paying as much attention to our metadata um so uh, yes it's whether it's hidden in the transaction logs whether it's hidden in metadata whether it's hidden in you know like deeply nested json structures i i mean i feel fairly confident in saying that there is a lot of information that you haven't unlocked because we've also fallen into this pattern of um i like to say like there's like 60 questions that, to answer in analytics i mean it's obviously tongue in cheek it's obviously a generalization but we've gotten <laughs> so used to this pattern of okay i need my uh, hubspot data i i need my salesforce data i need my xyz in like uh, you know really formulaic way of answering those questions and as we were saying earlier things are not deterministic like that right so uh i think my answer to your question is it's it's hard but it's a worthwhile exercise for sure i do think with different kinds of information architectures right going beyond the enterprise data warehouse or you know more newer models of um newer ways of doing data modeling i think breaking out of those um a little bit and thinking about information architecture anew given the tools that we have today that we didn't used to have so specialized um data source like graph um uh, graph databases or um inverse index uh, like search uh, databases like you know, elastic search um specialized data stores for um you know the images and language and and or vec vector databases we have all of these tools at our disposal now and there are even um companies that are like trying to be the layer on top of all of them so you don't have to go and integrate your vector database and your graph database um so if we can really leverage that if we can um dig dig into that and figure out how my information fits in how i can represent the different aspects of the information that i have in the correct format that's most relevant most optimized i think there's a lot of promise there but it's it's a lot of work um, i would say and um i'm not sure that one would be able to tomorrow go and say hey i need you know two years <laughs> worth of resources or something to really right. get a get a better representation of my business and i mean then you go to show the value of that right you try to uh project the estimated value and maybe our uh lightweight model is good enough right how you know what what is how much effort is worth getting a slightly better model right i i there's maybe a little bit of a paradox buried in here in that, you know, we, we started the conversation talking about business value. And if business value is articulated through kind of known KPIs, right, the way we measure the business, those are arguably trailing indicators. 
right? They're 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 not lead. They're certainly not leading gainers. Maybe sometimes they can be. Uh, maybe customer satisfaction. There's a few others, but like there's they're, they're generally you know they're measures of past performance. They're not indicators of future performance. They're just they're, they're trailing indicators. And finding that unknown that could be transformative re- requires a an, an undertaking that will that will consume resources, that will consume time, and that will will require a lot of experimentation and a lot of R and D. And it sounds for a lot of companies that's a bit like a lottery ticket. Right. But if you get it and if you land it, it could be like, holy cow. But maybe the happy middle ground is somewhere where you just suggested, like maybe more of a knowledge graph where you run a graph and you learn about a relationship that you didn't know about before and that you could use that as, as, as a way to maybe focus some of your efforts instead of just trying to come up with any, any, any correlation out there possible. And, and, and this is another reason why I actually kind of like the concept of master data, because it, it helps you focus your efforts. Right. You know, customers are important. Right, like that, you you know you know your supplies are important. You know your materials are important. At least gives you a place to start looking. So instead of it just being a, a total science experiment, where you're just trying to you know solve solve for everything all at the same time. So anyway, this is awesome stuff. What t- tell us a little bit about Upsolver really quickly? I mean, I, I'm I'm a big fan because you bought me some beer at 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 um, <laughs> at Day to Day Texas. But but quickly tell us about what your company does. Yeah, so uh, at Upsolver, we do believe that a lot of your valuable information is locked up in in your applications, in your product. Um, So uh, we want to help folks bring in that data into their data infrastructure, into analytics infrastructure, or whatever the use case may be. So we specialize in ingesting streaming data sources, such as message buses, event queues, like Kafka, Kinesis, etc. So if your microservices are talking to each other, that's generating you know, that, that's a queue that's generating a log. We help you ingest that. Um, and then databases. So Postgres, MySQL, all of these different databases that are powering the actual applications uh, that are serving your end users. We're also very good at ingesting that data. Um, you can land it in uh, warehouses like Snowflake. You can land it in lake houses. We just, um, we're actually, we have an event uh, coming up next week, um, the Chill Data Summit, which is all about learning about Apache Iceberg. Because we just did a what first day of the class week? I'm sorry to interrupt. Because this, what what day of the week is Chill Data? It is on Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, okay. This will publish 6th. on Thursday. So this will the Chill Data will have already have happened, unfortunately. But for next year, maybe 2025. Yeah, and also you know the the, the talks are going to be recorded and oh, good, available cool, good. on. Okay, cool. Good stuff. Um, so yeah, we we've in, incorporated uh, Apache Iceberg in, into our product, so you can uh, also write your data into a lake house. Really, however, uh, you're comfortable with interacting your data once it's in your systems. Um, we have we've left all of that open. Uh, I think folks often struggle with just getting that data in because data. I mean, uh, folks often don't even think about those data sources if they're in the you know my CRM world and my SaaS application work. So we help unlock the value of your production data. I, I finally just put two and two together. Iceberg, <laughs> chill. I, 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 fi- I finally put that together. I did, it just like we had talked about this a couple of times, but it's just like, oh. All right. So um, my, my, my last question. Are, are you generally, I, I, is it safe to say you're generally optimistic about AI and the future of AI? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. What what do you think about the concept of AGI? Um, you know, uh, where, where where potentially the machines get smarter than us? Do you see that? Do you see that future? Do you see it as imminent? And if so, what do you think of that future? 
I don't think it's that imminent. Um, I think that it's a natural, uh, I, I think, I think we're headed that way, but, um, I don't think that we're really going to get there in my lifetime, maybe, <laughs> but, um, I, I, there's a lot of science fiction on this. I don't really like, I don't really like to think about it if I guess if I'm being honest, um, because like, I love technology. I love advancement and I love answering questions, right? This is why I went into science. Like it's really important to know about the fundamental truths about the universe um, as best we can and, and model it. Um, but you get like, so I'm, I'm pro, <laughs> but um, on, on the other side, like it's going to be a different world if we get there. I mean, the main thing is the processing power, right? We are, we have our limitations as far as how fast we can do things. But we've been using tools to um, augment the way in which we you know, understand the world. I mean, even a calculator, right? Instead of doing multiplication in my head, I'll, I'll use a calculator. So it's not, the fundamental concept isn't new. Uh, being able to use a machine that is in some way superior to us, to, to me, in at least one particular area to help me do something. Now you generalize that to, every area and the it's natural i think to feel a little bit threatened um but at the same time like i think i think we have to understand the um it, i mean if bad things happen it's going to be malicious intent of human beings that lead to the bad things happening so i think i think we have a little bit of time to get to do this but i think it's very important for us to start thinking about like how like the laws and governance around how to build and how to use agi uh, so that you know we don't end up in one of those dystopian futures. That's a that's that's a great way to end. The future is on us. It's on us to try to figure out all of these rules, these policies, these ethics, these everything. So, what a wonderful conversation, Shantana! Thank you so much for taking time out of your Thank busy you. day. I look forward to seeing you. Uh, are you going to Data Universe, New York? Uh, probably. April? All right, cool. I'll catch I'll catch you there. To our viewers, please take the time to subscribe to CDO Matters. Take the time to like this, if in fact you did. I look forward to seeing many of you on the next episode of CDO Matters very soon. Thank you, Shantana, again so much. Thank you Bye so all. much. Thank you.